Tonight, the Latino Commission of the PCUSA will be presenting a class on the 26th of July movement and the broader revolutionary history of Cuba. It is vitally important for communists in the United States to study, understand, and appreciate the contributions that the Cuban people, particularly the Cuban communists, have given to the world revolutionary movement. The revolution lives on in Cuba, and its continued existence is a testament to the struggle and the strength of socialism, which has proven it can be built in less than 200 miles off the coastline of the United States. And with that, we will now begin our presentation. I would like to welcome our guest speaker for tonight. This is Carlos Garrido from Midwestern Marks. Hello, comrades. First of all, thank you to the People's School for Marxist Latin Studies for having me here to speak on such an important topic. We just heard played the La Guayamesa, which is the national anthem of Cuba. And it was written during the Ten Years' War by a fellow by the name of Petrucho Figueredo. And he actually wrote it on a horse right after they had taken Bayamo, one of the first major provinces taken by the revolutionaries. And I was telling the story to a friend of mine not too long ago, and he replied with the most unexpected reply that I could have received, which was that, how the hell was he able to write a song on a horse? Was he just jumping around and were the notes all scribbled? He didn't understand that he was not riding a horse, he was just on the horse. Cuba and the 26th of July movement. I consider it a pleasure that I'm able to also speak a little bit about the colonial history and the thought of Jose Marti that's often underestimated, but I think it's very important when we consider that socialism takes root in specific places differently, right? There's no such thing as socialism divorced from the specific conditions and history of the country. So Cuba provides us with an excellent example of a country taking its progressive history and synthesizing it with the Marxist-Leninist outlook in order to construct socialism. Different socialist projects can call different things in China, socialism, the Chinese characteristics in certain places in Latin America, Bolivarian socialism and in Cuba, it's very clear that the figure of Marti, whose ideas come out of the most conscious parts of the struggle against Spanish colonialism and American imperialism, the ideas of Marti are synthesized with the Marxist-Leninist outlook in the process of constructing socialism. I want to start off with a quote from History Will Absolve Me, which is a speech that Fidel gives when he's defending himself after the attack on the Moncada Barracks in 1953. He says that they prevented me from receiving the books of Marti. It seems the prison censorship considered them too subversive. Or is it because I said Marti was the inspirer of the 26th of July? But it makes no difference. I carry the teachings of the master in my heart. This spirit of incorporating Marti into the struggles that Cuba was facing is something that continues until today. If you look at the airport in Cuba, it's named after Marti and some of the central centers of culture and politics and economics are named after Marti. I want to start the story of Cuba in the colonial era. Like most of the places in the Caribbean and in America in general, they begin a process of colonialism by the late 15th century. In 1493, the colonizers arrive in Cuba for the first time. And as is the case with these processes, one of the first things you see is the genocide of the native population, either through direct violent conflict or through diseases that are brought from Europe, or specifically in Cuba's case, from Spain. 
There were, of course, native rebellions. The figure of Hatui is uh, one of the central figures in the native Taino rebellions in Cuba. The national beer of Cuba is actually named after. But once the natives begin to be exterminated, the next thing that the colonizers do is bring African people to work the plantations and the central industries of Cuba, which towards the end of the 18th century, Cuba's economy becomes centralized in sugar. And this is important to remember and to talk about because it means that by the time that the Cuban Revolution in 1959 takes root, not only is it fighting against American imperialism, but it's also fighting against the demons of colonialism, which are providing a historical pressure on the revolution, which it really had basically no control over. But Cuba becomes the sugar hub of the world, and its central export is sugar, which means that its economy is liable to global sugar price fluctuations. So when sugar is doing good globally, Cuba is doing good. When it's not, it's not. Another important thing to note is that by 1865, a century or so after sugar becomes the central commodity sold by Cuba, almost 65% of Cuba's sugar exports are going to the U.S., which means that the Cuban economy, not only is it dependent on sugar, but it's also dependent on trading that sugar with the United States, which appears because of 90-mile proximity to be its natural geographical trading partner. So this dependency continues well into the 20th century. By the 1920s, more than 80% of the export earnings in Cuba were coming from sugar. An interesting dimension of this forced colonial monocropping is that 75% of Cuba's arable land underwent soil erosure, which means that 75% of the land that Cuba could have used to grow the things it needed to sustain its people and to diversify according to the needs, it's not able to do so because of faults that have nothing to do with the revolution. In fact, it's only when the revolution comes about that a diversification of the Cuban economy really begins to be considered in a systematic manner. But take that into consideration, especially when you think about the effects of the blockade. Not only is Cuba a small country with limited resources and 75% of its arable land unable to grow food, not only is that the condition that Cuba is in, but it has the most formidable of empires as its enemy that's blocking its capacity to trade with it, which has been as I mentioned, its historical, natural, geographical trading partner, but blocking its ability to trade with other countries as well. So in terms of inequality, in the 1860s, more than 90% of the wealth that was produced by Cuba's resources and its labor was going to just under 8% of the population, which was Spanish. Where there is exploitation and where there is oppression, of course, what can we find? We find resistance. Those various forms of slave resistance and various sporadic uprisings. But the first major declaration of independence and united effort to create a Cuban Republic comes in 1868 with Carlos Manuel de Cepes' Grito de Yara. And after he issued this proclamation of war and of independence, he freed his slaves and incorporated them into the war. And in this war, figures like Antonio Maceo, which is known as the Bronze Titan, and Maximo Gomez begin to gain the experience that would prove itself to be absolutely necessary when they would lead the Cuban War of Independence in 1895. Ultimately, the Ten Years' War ends up unsuccessful and it terminates in the Pacto de San Juan, in the San Juan Treaty, which was seen as a compromise that compromised too much. 
a year after the Ten Years' War, there's a shorter war that takes place from 79 to 80. But that one fails too. The spirits were already down after 10 years of fighting. It's important to note that the U.S. in this first major war was funding and providing the most modern weapons that Spain was using. And there's an interesting passage from History Will Absolve Me, which shows the courage of the Mambises. They were fighting not just with machetes, which is what comes to mind when you think about the Mambises, the machete charge of Antonio Maceo, but some of them were fighting with just the metal cups that they had. And there was a historian that was able to see the battlefield afterwards, and he noticed that a lot of the clingling that he heard was actually the cups that were being used to fight. And Fidel brings this up, and history will absolve me to show the immense courage of the Cuban people and the fact that when a people are determined to attain freedom, it really doesn't matter what weapons they have or what weapons the enemy has. They're bound to get it sooner or later. A year into the war, a 16-year-old Martí gets incarcerated. He gets sentenced to six years in jail, but he only serves two. And then he gets exiled to Spain. Spain provides him an education. He is able to study law and philosophy. And Spain hoped that this basically free education would mean that Martí would sell out the cause of independence and become a Spanish loyalist. That, of course, never happened. As soon as he gets to Spain, he meets up with the Cuban diaspora and begins to plan a return to Cuba and ultimately for the liberation of Cuba, a war of independence. So he hops around various places in Latin America. He spent some years in Mexico, some years in Guatemala, but most of the time, a decade and a half, he spends in the U.S. plotting to go back and to carry forth a war of liberation. So this war ends up starting in 1895 after the founding of the Cuban Revolutionary Party. And there were some key speeches that Martí gave to tobacco workers in Florida that were seen as pivotal in the beginning of the war. Let's stop for a break for some questions. I know that, for instance, in the Caribbean, you saw a lot of the indigenous population, the vast majority, died from disease and from killings, and that's why they needed as many African slaves there. Was Cuba a similar situation to that, or were they similar to the U.S., where they had less slavery compared to the Caribbean and less of a disease killing indigenous and more laws passed that way? I'd say that the extermination of the Cuban indigenous people was actually done quicker than the genocidal activities that took place in the U.S., in part because the U.S. is larger there was a larger indigenous population. But yeah, it's an economy that the production was heavily done on plantations because of the monocropping nature of the economy it was centered around sugar. And a lot of the workers within these plantations were African people that were enslaved. I'd also add that with the Pacto of San Juan, a treaty that's signed to formally end the first 10-year war, it begins to abolish slavery, but it really takes like seven, eight years to end up abolishing slavery. But in that time, there was also a lot of Chinese people that were being brought to Cuba to work as indentured servants. So that's another sector that composed the active labor force in Cuba. You have the indigenous to Cuba, you have the African slaves, and then you also have the Chinese worker that comes in the end of the 19th century, which again is a similar phenomenon to what ends up happening in other countries of the Americas. There are actual still existing indigenous peoples living in the mountains of Cuba. It is a small surviving band, but there are some actual indigenous peoples that are actually there. Because it is a commonly held belief 
that all the indigenous peoples in Cuba have been killed from colonialism. Why was the situation in Cuba a little different than what happened in Puerto Rico and other Spanish islands that were in the area and also on the continent of South America? It seemed to be different. You mean different with respect to the colonial history? Right. So you have this strange phenomenon where the Spanish really wanted to keep a hold of Cuba until they physically couldn't. And some of the first universities that are created in the area, I think the first one is the University of Havana. So I think that there is definitely a different treatment that's received in Cuba than some of the other colonies. But I would say that in general, the essence of the colonial treatment was pretty similar. The essence of the struggles, I I would say, from what I've been able to read from other similar struggles in the regions, were also quite similar. And even with the case of Puerto Rico specifically, there was a lot of mismashing of the diasporic communities in the United States and New York. And a lot of the people that fought for independence within Puerto Rico were also joined in the struggle for Cuban independence and also vice versa. I had to study a lot of maps from Latin America for my history degree. And a lot of the maps that we looked at were ones from Cuba, specifically when it was a colony. And it's abhorrent that a lot of these railroads that are made, you'll always hear, they developed transportation and industry and whatnot. They just went straight from the plantation to the port. That's it. Keep that in mind. I think it's insanely cool that Latino countries in South America, Central America, wherever, are leaning more towards more socialist communist tendencies. My family is from Colombia. And so recently in the election when Gustavo Petro won, the presidency, I thought that was really sick. So I love hearing about Cuba because I feel like that is the poster of what could be in other countries. And it seems like a lot of Latin American countries are kind of going towards that direction. So I wanted to express sheer excitement on that. This is a really interesting presentation. My stepmother, she's Puerto Rican by actual blood descent, adopted in New York. She's definitely not a Marxist. It's really interesting right now, Puerto Rico is in the news lately, last I heard, and they're now at a crossroads about do they want to become a state that's part of the 50 states of the U.S. or do they want to go their own thing? So talking about Cuba and the fight that they had when they chose to go their own way and defy the imperialist hegemony is really interesting. With regards to Puerto Rico, there's this famous poem from Lola Rodriguez de Tio, which was a Puerto Rican poet. She was a good friend of Marti. And there she says that Cuba and Puerto Rico, of a bird, it's two wings. So these are seen as brother or a sister countries. And it's interesting the differences that a socialist revolution can create when you look at the condition that Cuba is in now and the condition that unfortunately Puerto Rico is in as a semi-colony of the U.S. Before we leave from the colonial part, One thing that I've been thinking about recently was it's interesting because I have a Peruvian background and a lot of the Andean culture that I'm familiar with. I think that the indigenous culture is something that's so prominent in Peru, in indigenous people. The vast majority of people are indigenous or really close to their indigenous heritage. And so I think about how vastly different that is for people in the Caribbean. And it's really because that was the first site of Spanish colonialism 
where the swaths of native people were eliminated to the point that the average Caribbean person has about 20% indigenous heritage, which you find is a very stark difference from the rest of Latin America. But it really holds true because this is the site of the greatest exploitation. It was the first site of contact. It was the first to get all the diseases, the first to be tested out and to be colonized and then able to expand to what later became Latin America. One thing I noticed about the Arawakan linguistic family branch or whatever that's called is that it spans literally all of Latin America. And I noticed that the Arawakans, which the Tainos were also a part of, is also more diverse than the Indo-European language family branch. And one thing I thought that was really interesting is that as Marxists, we know that culture reflects economics and the fact that this linguistic family shares the same trade routes as the Arawakans is also the same area where Spain was able to consolidate their empire. And I thought that was interesting. It was said about how it doesn't matter which tools the people have and which tools the enemies have, and that change will come if we want it. That's good. I think one thing that we're not thinking about is the one tool that does matter is ideology, right? It's not going to come from spontaneous uprisings. There has to be some kind of coercive trajectory And that definitely matters here if the ideology is so heavily propagandized and pushed. It's very hard for any organized movement to getting a foothold because we have been brainwashed and manipulated, etc. I think that that's something that we definitely need to take in consideration. It's not necessarily physical tools, but we definitely need the mental tools. You're absolutely right. It's not just the material weapons, but the ideological ones that are very important as well. And there's this phrase that's constantly repeated by Fidel in almost all of his speeches, which comes from Jose Martí's Nuestra America, which is that trenches of ideas are worth more than trenches of rocks. And if you look at the 1990s in Cuba after the overthrow of Eastern socialism, The caloric intake of its people was cut drastically in half. The material conditions were just horrific. But because they had those trenches of ideas and the revolutionary ideas emboldened on their chest, they understood that maybe not having the things that they need as much as they had before was preferable if they had autonomy and sovereignty than folding and becoming a country that's within the sphere of influence of the American empire. Thank you so far for this presentation, comrades. It's been insanely enlightening, and it's definitely something they never teach you in public schools. I know at around the same time in other places in Latin America, like Nicaragua and Honduras, there were these other conglomerates that were either getting some kind of monopoly export product that basically was wrecking the entire place just to grow this cash crop, be it bananas or coffee. Were there any large players in Cuba around this time before all this that also later were related to all these people that formed the United Fruit Company and all these other things later? The United Fruit Company was in Cuba, as well as the West Indian Company, which I believe was British. And there was a lot of small private investors in Cuba that owned a lot of the land in the beginning of the 20th century. But the major lands and the major industries were controlled by the United Fruit Company. Now, as far as the sort of genealogy of the company going back towards the colonial era, that's something that I haven't investigated. But I know that starting from the 1860s, when the U.S. begins to be the central trading partner with regards to sugar with Cuba, 
the private monopoly capital interest from the U.S. was starting to infiltrate itself into the island. To any other people with Latino background, the Latino Commission and the Progressive Center for the Pan-American Project need Latino members, so join that. With that, I'm going to bring the floor back to continue with the presentation. One of the things that I wanted to focus on before I jump into what's known in Cuba as the neocolonial era, what we can call as the era of U.S. imperialism, is the ideas of Jose Martí. There's something that's quite interesting about Martí that I don't think that it exists with any other figure in history, which is that both sides appeal to Martí. If you come to South Florida, where what we call the Usano community is at, they're appealing to Martí, and there's a bunch of schools named after Martí, and even the media communication projects that are funded by the NED and USAID, they have Martí's name in it, Radio Martí, TV Martí. But Martí is also the apostle of the Cuban Socialist Revolution, so there's this interesting, ambiguous character of Martí, but I think that in order for these people to hold on to Martí, they really have to paint the straw man caricature of Martí that really only sees him as an anti-Spanish colonialism thinker. But the reality is that Martí was very much concerned, as was Bolívar six decades before, with the influence of American imperialism. There had been basically six decades since the Monroe Doctrine basically becomes a systematic form that the U.S. foreign policy takes in its relationships with Latin America, what it considers to be its backyard. So Jose Martí was very cognizant of the threat of American imperialism, even after the yoke of Spanish colonialism was overthrown. So he emphasizes Latin American unity and anti-imperialism. He has this beautiful metaphor from Our America, which says that the trees have to be lined up so that the giant of the seven leagues does not pass. That's a folklore image of this giant that's able to take these massive steps but when he's talking about the trees, he's talking about our America, right? Latin America, it has to unite and only in unity can it counter the influence of American imperialism. And when we see the pink wave that took place in Latin America at the beginning of the century or the red slash pink wave that we're seeing now, we definitely see that in order to beat American imperialism, Latin America needs to come together and create a progressive unity that takes the influence of U.S. imperialism out of the region. Something interesting to note is that in 1896, in the middle of the Cuban War of Independence, the U.S. tries to buy Cuba off of Spain, and Spain rejects it. Another important part of Martí's thought that's incorporated into Cuban Marxism-Leninism was his excellent grasp of concrete character of universals. In philosophy, you have the treatment of these traditional categories like universal and particular, universal and individual in such a way that separates them by hard and fast lines. And what the dialectical tradition does, whether in Hegel or then in its materialist formulations with Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, what it does is recognize that there's no such thing as a universal divorce from the particular, that universals are incarnated, they're embodied, they're objectified in the particular, in the concrete. So we come up with this category to depict that dialectical relationship between the universal and the particular which is the concept of the rooted universal or of the concrete universal. And this is something that Jose Martí grasped very well. He says that the forms of governance of a country must accommodate itself to its natural elements. Absolute ideas to not fall into mistaken forms must be put into relative shape. 
right? So this is, again, very important for us Marxist-Leninists, which means that we have to be able to apply Marxism-Leninism to our conditions, know our history well, and use our history as historical legs in the struggle for socialism. Marti was understanding this as good as he could in his time with regards to the Cuban and the Latin American struggle of La Patria Grande against U.S. imperialism and against Spanish colonialism. Another important element that's incorporated into Marxism-Leninism is the fact that he sides with the poor and the oppressed. This is all over his work. I mentioned that the speeches he gave to tobacco workers were some of the most important ones that precipitated the Cuban War of Independence. And of course, in the song Guantanamera, he says that with the poor of the earth, I would like to place my luck. So how this person can get caricatured into someone who would be in favor of the U.S. annexing Cuba and overthrowing the Cuban Revolution, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that has to be at play for people to do that down here. Two other important points. He understood that democracy is spoiled by the interests of capital. As I mentioned, he spent a decade and a half in the United States, so he was able to see how politics functions here in the U.S., how it functions, as John Dewey once said, as the shadow of big business. He was very aware of the fact that politicians really just do anything to get votes at this time, that politicians were basically buying beer for their constituents in order to guarantee votes. And he saw it as this almost carnival-style atmosphere that was ridiculous, and he understood that the people pulling the strings behind the politicians, the puppet masters, were the big business interests. They were the major monopoly capitalists that had control over politics. And he understood that in order for democracy to flourish, in order for America to actually live up to the ideals of its Declaration of Independence, of being a nation of, by, and for the people, it had to repress the interests of capital. Capital couldn't continue to exert its interest and its influence over and above the interests of the mass of people. And lastly, he had a really good understanding of the dialectics of theory and praxis, which is, of course, fundamental for our tradition. He understood that you shouldn't just seek to understand the world, especially when you're in the class that's subjected to imperialism, to colonialism, to oppression, to exploitation. You seek to understand the world concretely in order so that you have the best tools for knowing how it is that you should change it. So I think these five points are central in the incorporation of Jose Martí's thought and of the specific progressive characteristics of Cuban history into the socialist project and getting enmeshed with the Marxist-Leninist outlook as Cuba develops socialism. Returning to the question about cash crops, which American companies might be involved in that and how they influence the government. Yes, that all happened in Cuba. It was sugar. Sugar was the cash crop, and it was so important that it generated almost all of their money. They sent 90% of their sugar abroad after the Spanish-American War. All of the American banks came in and bought up huge tracts of land and sugar mills. And there was this one guy, R.B. Hawley, he organized the Cuban American Sugar Company. And from the time of the Spanish-American War to the Cuban Revolution under Fidel, that is what controlled the economy because the banks backed it all up. They were in control of the debt and almost all of that sugar was being sent to the United States. The United States 
made deals that they would buy all of it. We even set up laws that would cut the Cuban producers out of the deal and we refined all the sugar here. So it was just grown there. Was Jose Marti a self-described socialist and or Marxist? He wasn't a socialist. He never described himself as such. He was involved in basically all of the progressive movements that you can think of in the U.S., labor struggles, women's suffrage movements, anti-racist movements. But he never declared himself a socialist. And especially when he was young, that he had first got into New York, he had some critical comments about Marx. But then when Marx dies, he does a speech where he really praises Marx quite a bit. It doesn't seem to have been really a central question to the more radical movement in Cuba at the time, which is really just focused on overthrowing the yoke of Spanish colonialism. But if you look at where he stood in terms of uh, his critique of the influence of capital in politics, his critique of the influence of capital in economics, where you can't have democracy at work when you have capital dictating to workers what's what, I think that even though he wasn't a socialist for himself, so he wasn't conscious of the fact that he was a socialist in himself and the politics that he proposed, I think that you can say that he was a form of socialist, definitely progressive. He was also very much influenced by Georgism, which was a left-wing rural socialistic movement here in the 19th century. It was a left-wing populist land movement with hints of utopianism as well. I know that the Communist Party of Cuba today is a result of essentially an integration between what was formerly, I'm forgetting the name, but basically the Socialist Party of Cuba, the July 26th movement, and some other small revolutionary organizations, to my understanding. But the Cuban revolution is also super interesting because of the time that it takes place, right in the mid-50s, not even a decade after the defeat of fascism, and then obviously Khrushchev and the 20th Party Congress speech in 1956. My question is, the July 26th movement itself and its manifesto that it released, I believe, in 1956, they allude to basically Jeffersonian ideas and Lincoln. So my question is, what is the historical basis or thread that we can draw from why they would maybe appeal to those kinds of ideas or philosophies? I think it gets at the fact that given just the quantitative amount of people in the bourgeoisie, what you find with bourgeois philosophy is that in order for it to succeed, it needs to get other classes involved in its project. And so it means that the ideology that it has to propose has to be vague enough and universalistic sounding enough so that other classes that are objectively antagonistic to the interests of the bourgeoisie are in coalitions with it. And you find that in the Declaration of Independence, right? There's this vague character that was used in the 19th century U.S. to promote the abolitionist movement, the first socialist movements from the 1820s onwards. They consider themselves to be based on the ideas of Jeffersonian democracy. If you read Ho Chi Minh's Declaration of Independence for Vietnam, he's appealing to the Declaration of Independence of the U.S. So I think it stems from the vague character with which the ideas of independence was promoted, and also to the character of making a revolution concrete of basing yourself on the history of the place where you're from. If you look at history will absolve me, he's picking from Payne, he's picking from Jefferson, he's picking from so many places to argue that they have a right to have a revolution. So I think that in the early 50s, there's this thing that's often done specifically by liberals from the first generation of emigres that 
supported the 26th of July movement, but that then rejected the form it took with Marxism-Leninism, which is to say that Fidel was just a vague left-wing populist at first, and that only then after does he become a socialist and a Marxist-Leninist. If you look at the demands that he's making in 1953, the things he says that he's going to do if he would have succeeded with the attack on the Moncada barracks, it's socialism. You can't call it anything else. It's socialism. And the 1940 constitution in Cuba was one of the more progressive constitutions of the Americas. The people involved in writing the constitution, the Communist Party was involved in writing it to uh, central figures. Juan Malinero was one of them who ends up being a major figure in the construction of Cuban socialism later on. Did you say that it was a song written by Marti himself? No, the song is composed out of a mixture of Marti's poems. No, Marti didn't write the song itself. We're going to give the presentation back so we can continue. U.S. imperialism and pre-1959 revolutionary Cuba. During the last three months of the Cuban War of Independence, with a sprinkle of yellow journalism, the U.S. intervenes and invades Cuba and ends up occupying it for three years, which is something that it would end up doing three more times from the time of what we call here the Spanish-American War and the Cuban Revolution, which includes, of course, the continuous occupation of the U.S.'s favorite torture spot, Guantanamo Bay. What's interesting is that the conditions that are postulated for the U.S. to leave Cuba to stop occupying it after it intervenes with the Spanish-American War The conditions are really, in order for us to leave, we're going to give you these conditions that effectively mean that we never really leave. So it was the ratifying of the Platt Amendment, which was written by the U.S. Secretary of War, which was the condition for allowing Cuba to not be occupied by the U.S. But in essence, what the Platt Amendment did was make Cuba into a de facto U.S. protectorate. The U.S. had control over the foreign and economic policy in Cuba. They had the right to intervene to protect American property in the island, which it owned most of the major industries and most of the land. So it had the right to coaling and to naval stations in Cuba, and it also had the base in Guantanamo Bay. So we consider this period the period of American imperialism, but in Cuba, they describe it as a period of neocolonialism because they say that the essence of governance and who was benefiting was the same, but all there was was a change in form. You had the form of a republic, but there was really never any actual autonomy. Even after the 1933 revolts, when Ramon Grau San Martin, after a coup, he comes into power, he was a relatively progressive professor that was put in power. Within a year, he's removed via a coup that's led by Batista, the first coup that he led. So as soon as the interest of American monopoly capital was threatened, it had, because of the Platt Amendment, the right to intervene. So what conditions was Cuba in? As I mentioned, American companies controlled basically all of the central industries in Cuba. So by 1905, 60% of the rural land and 90% of the tobacco industry was owned by American companies. By 1920, 95% of the sugar industry's harvest was controlled by the U.S. investors. So again, this is the central crop upon which Cuba's export economy is based. By the late 1950s, American companies control 90% of the mines, 80% of the public utilities, and 50% of the railways. What did this mean? Well, for American multinational corporations and the monopoly capitalists, Cuba was the paradise. 
And so it was the same for a very small percentage of Cubans that benefited from this condition of super exploitation of the island. In 1946, less than 1% of Cuban farmers controlled 36% of the farmland and 8% of the farmers controlled 70% of the farmland. So not only was there a condition where American monopoly capital was imposing its will on Cuba, but there was also internally, as is usually the case, a bourgeoisie which was massively unequal in terms of ownership. So the small percentage of Cubans, those that came right after the revolution and who say how much socialism sucks and how bad Cuba is and how much of a tyranny it is, blah, blah. That small percentage, they lived really, really well, while the vast majority of Cubans lived in horrendous conditions. For instance, 93% of rural households lacked electricity, 85% lacked running water, 54 lacked an indoor or outdoor toilet, 96 lacked a refrigerator, and fewer than half of the children were enrolled in school. Coupled with this is a rampant and blatant corruption. And that's not just from the interests that were directly, the parties that were directly seen as representing the Cuban bourgeoisie and American interests, but even relatively progressive parties as the Partido Autentico, the authentic party, there was blatant corruption to the point where one of the central elections, the first time that Batista gets elected before there's a coup in 52, he actually won via election against Partido Authentico because of how rampant corruption was. Of course, it only got worse with Batista. So as I mentioned, in 52, Batista's put back into power through a U.S.-backed coup. The Americans had had their eye on Batista ever since he was a young military officer in the 30s. And he was one of the central figures in 34 in overthrowing the government of San Martin. But by the time that the Cuban Revolution comes around in a span of just seven years, more than 20,000 Cubans are killed by the Batista regime. And if you read History Will Absolve Me, you find that more than 70 people were killed after the attack on the Moncada barracks, basically murdered, right? No due process. And a lot of them weren't even involved in the attack or in the, what would become the 26th of July movement. So in 53, the attack takes place and Fidel gives his History Will Absolve Me speech. They didn't allow him to have paper, so he wasn't able to write the speech. He had to memorize it by heart and then give it to the court a few months after the event took place. But eventually, Fidel is freed, and he and other comrades from the 26th of July movement spend three years in Mexico planning to go back and have a revolution. So the grandma ship, which originally was able to hold only 12 people, somehow they got 80 people on there, and they ended up landing in the Sierra Maestra. And it's a disaster. As soon as they land, they get caught. Quite a few of them are killed. The group ends up splitting up. But over the course of the two and a half, three years that the revolution was fighting and waging guerrilla warfare, they are really able to get the peasantry, the agriculture and industrial proletariat to go on the side of the revolution. And eventually they end up winning. And by December 31st, 1958, the revolution arrives at Havana and Batista flees, which is a scene that's seen, I believe, in Godfather 2. In terms of history, will absolve me, as I mentioned, if you look at some of the policies that he was proposing, they were quite radical. Giving land back to the people, giving workers 30% of the share of the profits in their business, 
giving sugar planters 55% of the share over production, expropriating property acquired through corruption during the dictatorship and using the funds to pay for the retirement of workers and hospitals and public services, allowing Cuba to be a safe haven for people fighting liberatory wars across America, have an agrarian reform, which if we know the history of the revolution, it's one of the first things they do when they get into power, having an educational reform, which again, it's one of the central ideas that comes from RT, the importance of education and of developing culture, nationalizing electricity and telephone monopolies, which again, as I mentioned, they're basically fully controlled by US companies, refunding the people of the illegal rates that were charged by these companies. If someone were proposing this in the US today, they'd be called a communist or socialist by the media. So this is what Fidel proposed in History Will Absolve Me. This was the plan that they wanted to bring about if they would have been successful. Of course, all of this and more ends up being conquered eventually after the 59 revolution. The revolution takes place in 59. And as I mentioned, one of the first things that it does is nationalize some of Cuba's key industries, which of course puts it in an antagonistic relationship to U.S. monopoly capital. Specifically, the major company was United Fruit Company, which is also doing similar things all across Latin America. And what ends up happening is this this back and forth that Cuba would nationalize something in order to input its distributive and economically egalitarian policies. And as a reaction, the American empire would provide an embargo on one thing. And then it kept on going to the point where uh, there's a full-blown blockade input on Cuba, which if we think about the historical conditions that were talked about in the first section of colonialism, the dependency on sugar, the dependency on trading that sugar with the United States, and the 75% soil erosion taking place in Cuba's arable land, to have a small island like this blocked off from the most formidable of empires human history has seen is really giving it a death sentence. The purpose of the blockade is explicitly said very, very early on in 1960 by Lester Mallory, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs. He says, Every possible mean should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba. If such a policy, the blockade, is adopted, it should be the result of a positive decision which would call forth a line of action which, while as adroit and inconspicuous as possible, makes the greatest inroads in denying money and supplies to Cuba to decrease monetary and real wages to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government. He would continue in the memorandum to say that the majority of Cubans support Castro, and there is effectively no political opposition. Therefore, the only foreseeable means of alienating internal support is through the disenchantment and disaffection based on economic dissatisfaction and hardship. In essence, by removing Cuba's historical and geographically natural trading partner and removing access to the planet's largest economy to all countries which dare to trade with Cuba, the policy that intended to bring about hunger, desperation, and overthrow of government was effectively in full swing. I think it's important to know we often talk about the blockade and of course its influence can never be undermined or underestimated, but we have to understand that American imperialism has a by any means necessary philosophy of overthrowing the Cuban revolution, which means that it attacks it not just with a blockade, but it attacks it by other means, which include anything from military attacks, attempted assassinations on Fidel, biological warfare and terrorism. So some of these beyond economic attacks on Cuba include the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, which was squashed, of course, within three days. 
the more than 600 CIA-led unsuccessful attempts on Fidel's life, 10 or so biowarfare attacks, and most famously, perhaps the 1971 CIA-orchestrated African swine fever virus spread, which was reported at the time by Covert Action magazine. It was leaked from a CIA agent that flipped. And the backing and funding of groups and individuals who partook in terrorist bombings, the cases of Orlando Bush and Luis Posada Garriles are perhaps the best known, who ended up blowing up in 1976, a Cuban airplane killing 73 people. These two figures are celebrated today in the Miami exile community. Another operation that is often unknown and that shows the extent to which the U.S. empire is willing to go to in order to overthrow the Cuban revolution is Operation Northwood in 1962, which was considering orchestrating a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area and in other Florida cities and even in Washington, which would be helpful in projecting the idea of an irresponsible government. In essence, what they wanted to do was blow up things in America, kill people in America, and then use it as atrocity propaganda to legitimize a full-fledged invasion of Cuba. So let that sink in. The U.S. wanted to kill American people, blame it on Cuba, so that then it could go to war with Cuba. One of the most important factors, though, has been the funding of dissident groups. Now, you can have the conditions of Cuban, you can make the conditions of Cuban as dire as you want, but if there's not an effective opposition to the revolution, you're not doing anything. So as Tracy Eden, who's the founder of the Cuba Money Project, has shown, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, the National Endowment for Democracy, the NED, which are the CIA's two new fronts, and the U.S. State Department. Between the three, more than $1 billion has been given to Cuban opposition groups and media, both within Cuba and in the Cuban exile community. TV and Radio Marti are just two examples of that. Within the last 10 years alone, more than $300 million of that has came from American taxpayer money. So more than $300 million of American taxpayer money has gone to creating the means to overthrow the Cuban revolution and disseminating anti-revolution propaganda. So this has been actually quite effective in the funding of the USAID and NED of hip-hop groups like Los Hatianos or hip-hop-related movements like the San Isidro movement, which was basically the center of focus in the atrocity propaganda that was used against Cuba and that precipitated the July 11 protest. And then, of course, you have over the last two years Cuba having to battle not just the American blockade, but also the pandemic. And one of the things we have to remember about the blockade is that it's not a fixed entity. It's not something that Cuba can just figure out, okay, this is how it functions. Let's see how we can work around it. The blockade is fluid, as fluid as the responses that the Cuban government gives to the blockade. So the blockade is able to adjust itself to different periods in order to be effective in what it tries to do, which, as we saw with Lester Mallory, its intent is to starve the people to the point of rebelling against your government. It has been estimated that within the last six decades, more than $1,300 billion has been lost because of the blockade. So just imagine how much of that money could have been used to lift the living standards of Cubans and to create marvelous things like the medical brigades that Cuba has, which are recognized all over the world, which have been nominated in the case of the Henry Reeve Brigade for a Nobel Peace Prize for its activities in fighting the COVID pandemic. With the limited amount of resources, Cuba has been able to do a lot. When the pandemic comes about, the empire really tries to exploit it. And such examples are, for instance, when Jack Ma, the owner of Alibaba, the Chinese billionaire, 
one of the first things he did was send ventilators to Cuba. And the U.S. blocked this at a Colombian airport. Another example is that one of the key issues that precipitated the protests was the lack of vaccination across the population. And the reality is that Cuba was the only country in Latin America to create not just one vaccine, but five. It created five vaccines at the time. Three of them were viable, but it wasn't able to successfully vaccinate its population because it didn't have the things it needed to create the syringes because of the blockade. So these blockade and pandemic conjoint difficulties intensified by the imperialist funding of dissident groups culminated in the protests of July 11, 2021, which, although small, ephemeral, and dwarfed by the pro-revolutionary crowds, it conveniently gave the media lapdogs an opportunity to fabricate narratives about Cuban human rights abuses. Two weeks after, almost every country in the world, with the exception of the U.S. and Israel, had voted for the 29th consecutive year against the continuation of the blockade on Cuba. So the blockade is not just immoral, it's not just an action of blatant American imperialism, it's something that has been condemned by the whole world for basically three decades straight. Is there any aspect of Marti where the bourgeoisie almost has a valid case for capitalizing on his thought, or is it truly a case of exotic mental gymnastics? Is there anything in his character that actually makes sense for that class to appeal to him. Marti wasn't a Marxist, right? His analysis wasn't guided by the central antagonisms that exist in modern capitalist society. In that sense, I guess they can use that to counterpose him to the Cuban revolution, but that's really as far as I could see it playing out. It's really a stretch what they do with Jose Marti because they end up getting these words, liberty and democracy. And again, liberty for who? democracy of what, right? We know that when we hear these words coming out of the mouths of the pundits of imperialism, it really means liberty for capital. Democracy in the sense of allowing different capitalists to, amongst themselves, choose what ends up going on in society as a whole. And this was not what Marti had in mind when he spoke about liberty, when he spoke about democracy and about adhering to those ideals, right? He had a completely different understanding of that, that although maybe naive because it didn't take account as systematically as he should have of class, he was very well aware that in terms of the common good of people as a whole, there's this class that owns that by its very interest being in expanding what it owns, it finds itself in an antagonistic position to society as a whole. I think that if Marti would have continued being alive, he would have pretty soon became a Marxist-Leninist. North America is a very unique country, very controversial, very contradictory in terms of principles and ideas. And I think there is no any African or Latin American intellectual that was not influenced by the pioneers of this nation. Because when we're going to school in Africa, we said, the founding fathers of the United States. I think Jose Marti was influenced also by the American Revolution, but they betrayed him. That is what I say. Once you betray a democratic leader, a more radical version of the same democratic leader comes into the picture in the history of the country. So that is Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro himself was very idealistic about North America. He had some democratic ideas, especially since the trade of the country was linked to North America, but they betrayed him. The ruling classes of this country are most dangerous. 
Look at the witch hunts in American history and all the suppression of progressive movements in America. There is a deep state in this country, and we have to be very careful. The argument that Cuba was so perfect until the revolution. Revolution doesn't just spring up in countries that are doing fine and let alone succeed and withstand themselves. So it doesn't make any sense. Me and my girlfriend would be interested in traveling to Cuba and seeing the country for ourselves and learning a lot about the history firsthand. But I heard it's hard to travel there. They have some restrictions or tourism or something. Can anyone fill me in on that? How could I go about visiting? The central restrictions that I know of are put by the American blockade. It's been sustained by Biden, even though he promised to return to Obama-era policies where the blockade was not fully lifted, but partially lifted enough for people to travel freely back and forth. But yeah, the restrictions that I know of are really stemming from the U.S., not from Cuba. When I was looking at Comrade Fidel in History Will Absolve Me speech, the things listed there kind of looks like a minimum program for the Communist Party, not a program that will bring a dictatorship of the proletariat or, say, full socialism, but a program that would create enough class conflict and that the working class would have to fight for for such an extent that a dictatorship of the proletariat would result from the victory of fulfilling that program of nationalizing electricity, land, stuff like that, creating a movement. I was wondering if that's something other people picked up on. I think of it as such. I don't know if by direct intention or not, but I do think of it as such. And it's a program that, whether it was intended with the farther view of creating the conditions so that people can accept a more radical program later on, I think the reality was that as a baseline, he ended up realizing that you couldn't do that unless you went all the way. And that incapacity of a social democratic, soft socialist program to take root in a way that is not antagonistic to capital, in a way that doesn't feel the hands of monopoly capital fighting back, forced him to realize that it was all or nothing. He could find the answer. And the famous speech that Fidel Castro gave, where he announced that he was a Marxist Leninist to his death, a quick passage. To some of those who have at times asked me, some people have asked me if I used to think at the time of Moncada as I do today. I say, I thought very much like I do today. That is the truth. Anyone who reads what we said on that occasion will see that many fundamental things about the revolution are expressed in that document, and that it is, moreover, a carefully written document. It was written with sufficient care to expound some basic points without at the same time raising problems that can limit our scope of action within the revolution so as to prevent the movement which we believed could lead to the overthrow of Batista from being very much reduced and limited. In other words, it was necessary to try to broaden that movement as much as possible. What I get from what he said is that it was watered down to bring in more people so they could meet the goal of overthrowing Batista and the goal was always socialism. And if you look at how he's pitching these reforms, he's always connecting it to the 1940 Constitution, which was quite popular amongst the population, but never actually applied. It was always violated. If you look at ever since the Cuban Revolution, the things that the Cuban government has been able to accomplish, one of the best healthcare systems in the world, a cure for lung cancer. Recently, I just read about a vaccine for Alzheimer's disease that's currently being tested out. Just imagine what they could do 
if they had the embargo lifted, what can we do here in the Imperial Corps to try to get this embargo lifted off the island of Cuba? The first thing is to realize that it's ultimately not in the interest of American monopoly capital to do that, because it means that 90 miles away from the empire, from the belly of the beast, you have a successful socialist experiment. The great myth that is used in all textbooks and in all pundits of American capitalism is that socialism hasn't worked. And we know that the reality is that it has for millions and millions and millions of people. And it has in Cuba, regardless of the atrocious circumstances that it's faced because of the blockade, because of the hybrid warfare that the U.S. has waged on Cuba. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that it's not going to pass easy. But I think that a good point to fight on is that part of it was lifted by Obama. And when it was lifted, Cuba was driving quite well. It had one of the highest GDPs, if not the highest GDP in Latin America. And it was a growth that was being felt in all levels of society. It was a general raising of the living standards like hadn't been seen since the late 70s. And Biden promised to continue the Obama policy. But in reality, what we've had is not only a continuation, but an expansion of the Trump era policy against Cuba. So calling that out. But again, what campaign promise has Biden fulfilled? Biden did lift some of the restrictions. Currently, you can go to Cuba. It's open to American travelers to make sure you have your COVID up to date. Make sure you, I think they require some kind of test, like a PVC test before, three days before you get on a plane. But you can. You should check out flights to Cuba now. Although, cautionary, my preference before going to Cuba would be to hook up with an outfit that has been doing this for years, because they'll know the ropes. So there are sites out there and people out there that can get you to Cuba and get you to the right places, depending on your interest. The presence of American interests and capital, and specifically the mafia and organized crime in Cuba. If you want to know more about that, I suggest you go look up the Havana Conference that happened in 1946. And that's where the Casa Nostra leaders set up the ground rules for exporting drugs and alcohol and all that through Cuba to the U.S. The people in Miami are proud of that mafia history, by the way. One of the longest standing shows in America TV, which is the main television network in South Florida, was called La Cosa Notra, which goes back to that conference that the comrade mentioned. Talked about the Grandma expedition from Mexico to the east coast of Cuba, and 82 people left. They landed. Batista's army knew they were coming, waited for them, wiped them out, except for 12 people that made it to the Tierra Maestra mountains safety. And Camilo Sanfuegos, Raul Che, and Fidel, of course. Four people out of those 12. Another thing, the revolution kind of started as a bourgeois democratic national liberation. Back at the beginning, they had a lot of support from some of the bourgeois classes or national bourgeoisie, you could say, in the cities. But then it evolved into a socialist revolution. It's not so different from the Russian revolution. It started in February, bourgeois democratic. Eight months later, socialist. And in 61, 
big time socialist. So within two years, it evolved. It was meant to be anyway. I would describe it as the category that Mao introduces as a new democracy. After the October Revolution, all of these anti-colonial struggles by necessity end up taking a more socialistic character. So it is a hybrid because it is Cuba's official bourgeois revolution, but it also looks a lot more like the Chinese revolution that establishes new democracy than the bourgeois revolutions of previous centuries. I was watching this bourgeois-made documentary series at one point on Netflix called Cuba Libre. And one of the things that they had said in it about the Cuban revolution was that during it, they were using radio broadcasts and shooting shots off in the air to make it seem like they were fighting battles and winning their way across going west towards Havana. And I was wondering if that's true or if that's U.S. propaganda to make it seem like they weren't fighting as much as they said they were. And with that, too, what kind of role did propaganda play in the Cuban revolution? There were certain small tactical things like that that were done to make the success of the revolutionaries, specifically early on, seem larger than what it was. And all things seemed to indicate that it actually succeeded. Like there was an American reporter that went to go talk to Fidel and Fidel said, like, hold him there for a while. Tell him that I'm doing some fighting or something until I get back. And he actually wasn't at the time, but it created the idea that it was. And it was not a fake it till you make it sort of thing, but some things were exaggerated on both ends in order to further the ends that they were fighting for, both on the side of the revolutionaries and on the side of the reactionaries. But Propaganda, of course, plays a big role. There was a lot of Batista propaganda a few different times where they said that the revolutionaries were wiped out and that Fidel died. But they had such great links to the mass of Cubans that it wasn't really bought most of the time. Like we saw with Marti, we've seen with, you mentioned the right kind of trying to monopolize on Marti. And we've seen that with Connolly. And there's even been some African revolutionaries and things that have been whitewashed after they've been killed, they tend to focus mostly on the national liberation from colonialism or imperialism, while still mentioning capitalism as a key problem and pointing out flaws of capitalism, but aren't necessarily openly socialist at first. Do you think that same kind of whitewashing claim by a Cuban bourgeois would have happened if Fidel had died early on in the revolution or had died right after the revolution's success before openly stating Marxist-Leninists and pushing a harder socialist life? Very good question. It forces you to speculate a little bit, but I'm not sure. I think that the platform was already very antagonistic to the major corporate interests in the island, both the ones that were from the U.S. and from other multinational monopolies and the ones that were internal from the national bourgeoisie and when that national bourgeoisie comes to the U.S., it plays a really central role in disseminating the propaganda about the revolution. So I don't really think that they were ever friends of Fidel or of the 26th of July movement. Very, very few people that participated in the 26th of July movement would then end up condemning the revolution in 59. And I don't think that it would happen just because of how antagonistic from the start the interests of that Cuban elite was with the 26th of July movement. You could find the speech history will absolve me as well as the speech I quoted from earlier 
And the newest release from our partner publishing has New Outlook Publishers. Fidel Castro selected speeches on NewOutlookPublishers.net. About the embargo being lessened of it. Always remember, comrades, that when capitalist nations do this, it's not because they're making up with Cuba or that they want good things for Cuba. We actually saw a really similar thing kind of happen in Libya. Libya in the early 2000s was actually making up with the U.S. The U.S. was dropping sanctions. Libya was loosening up. They were allowing more dissidents to come back. They were allowing more American NGOs and networks and groups to come in. And this wasn't because America was trying to make nice with Gaddafi. It was because they were preparing the groundwork to eventually overthrow Gaddafi and overthrow Libya. And that is what they want to do in Cuba, comrades. Let's not make any ends about that. We actually saw they tried to do that in 2021 with those brief protests that were organized and that were really astroturfed by Twitter. This is what the liberal faction of the Eastern establishment really wants to do, specifically Democrats. They want to play nice with Cuba, but help build up the forces for counter-revolution. Because no matter what, Democrat or Republican, they hate the Cuban revolution and they want to see counter-revolution in Cuba. They want Cuba to be a Yankee colony again. That's their ultimate goal. The funding of dissident groups within Cuba is perhaps one of the biggest ones they've spent more than a billion dollars over the last two decades funding dissident groups and specifically the hip-hop scene, which over the last 10 years, that's been more than $300 million of American taxpayer money that's used to fund propaganda outlets like TV and Radio Marti and others and artists directly in the island to promote regime change. You're absolutely right. What role did Raul Castro play in the revolution? Because I don't hear very much about his role or what he did, but I know that after Fidel died, he was the head of Cuba for a couple of years until Diaz Canal took over. So I'm wondering what role he played. A massive role. He is one of the leaders of the revolution. And it's sad that sometimes he's overshadowed by Fidel. I mean, the figure of Fidel is just massive. Perhaps top three biggest revolutionaries of the 20th century. But Raul played a massively important role, specifically in the radicalization of Fidel, as well as Comrade Angelo had mentioned. Raul was in the party, whereas Fidel was not in the early 50s. So that's a brother that's in the party that's obviously playing a large influence in the process of Fidel's radicalization. So we cannot underestimate the influence that Raul played within the revolution in all of its phases. Some of the achievements of the revolution, well, the first one is that it exists, as was mentioned in the introduction. The revolution lives on in Cuba, and its continued existence is a testament to the strength of socialism. Absolutely. Cuba has been between a rock and a hard place over the last 60 years, especially if we consider some of the colonial history, the dependency on sugar that the revolution is forced to tarry with and diversify its economy, the dependency on trading that with the U.S. When you add up all these conditions, the blockade, the covert action, hybrid warfare that the U.S. wages against Cuba, the fact that it exists is in itself an insane achievement. But besides existing, it has also thrived when it comes to human standards. They have provided free education for 100% of the country's children. They have abolished illiteracy, not even functional illiteracy exists in Cuba, which is something that does exist in the U.S. a hell of a lot more. They rank first with the highest numbers of teacher per capita and the lowest number of students per classroom. So teachers can actually have enough time to pay attention to their students. All citizens have the possibilities of taking up studies from kindergarten to a doctoral degree without spending a penny. 
infant mortality has been reduced from 60 per 1,000 live births to rates that fluctuate between 6 and 6.5, which is the lowest from the U.S. to the Patagonia and the whole hemisphere. Life expectancy has increased by 15 years. Cuba is today the country with the highest number of doctors per capita in the world, almost twice as much as the country in second place. Cuba has the best healthcare system in the world and continues to give its citizens services free of charge. Social security covers 100% of the citizenry. 85% of the people own their homes and pay no property taxes whatsoever. The remaining 15% pay a wholly symbolic rent, which is only 10% of their salary. I don't know about you guys, but as a graduate assistant teacher, 98% of my salary goes towards rent. So this is pretty sweet. There is no commercial advertisement in Cuban television or radio or in their printed publications. These instead feature public service announcements concerning health, education, culture, physical education, sports, recreation, environmental protection, etc., etc. So their commercial breaks promote virtue and give people the news. They don't just try to sell people a bunch of consumerist BS. Virtually all discrimination against women was eradicated. Today in Cuba, women make up more than 64% of technical and scientific workforce, as well as almost half of the politicians in Cuba are women. Cuba has a participatory and protagonistic socialist democracy, which means that what governs in Cuba is the people. It is the working class and not money, as it's the case here in the U.S. Cuba sends doctors around the world, such as the Henry Reeve Brigade, which for its efforts during COVID, it was nominated by various organizations and various central figures for a Nobel Peace Prize. Whereas the U.S., of course, what does it ship across the world? Well, it ships bombs, amongst other horrible things. And the new generations of Cubans are educated so as to protect the environment. Cuba is one of the first countries to center the question of climate change and the protection of the environment. And it's the most sustainable developed country on earth. Year after year, the studies comes out that Cuban socialism is the most sustainable system on the planet. So I don't know about you, but with all the conditions set against Cuba, the fact that it exists is insane, but the fact that it's been able to do all of this is even crazier. And if they were able to have access to that constant revenue that's lost because of the blockade, if they were able to have access to not having the sort of stress that's created because of the blockade and because of the constant hybrid warfare brought about by the American empire, they would be doing much greater things than what they are now. The first time that I saw in Newark, New Jersey, a statue of Jose Marti, and I was like, that's incredible. Why is that here, though? As I understand it, he was more of a Georgist or something. When you mentioned the fact that there were a lot of Chinese indentured servants brought to Cuba, were they coming because of the Dutch that were trafficking a lot of Chinese labor across the world. I think that's where the majority of where a lot of the Chinese labor that would build the railroads out in the Western US came from. If I'm not mistaken, I was wondering if you knew. I do not. I know there was major Dutch corporations in Cuba, and I imagine that they had to have played a role at the time in the bringing of the Chinese, especially if they were central to doing that elsewhere, but I can't recall off the top of my head if I've read about that anywhere. But there's a few statues of Marti all over the U.S., and I also can't understand how it is that they grab onto this figure except by a, a formidable task of mental gymnastics. I've heard Guantanamera before, but never knew about its history in regards to Jose Marti. 
What I wanted to ask, though, was thinking of the time frame that this revolution happened in, it was happening as there was this new imperial drive by the United States under the McKinley administration, and they were doing things in the Caribbean, the Philippines, and China during the Boxer Rebellion. I'm wondering if Jose Marti had any opinions on the McKinley administration or on these other areas of conflict where the U.S. was involved. Yeah, his anti-imperialism is not really a result of a theoretical examination of how capitalism must, by its very internal necessity, expand outside and try to conquer new markets. His anti-imperialism was based on what he was seeing and the policies of the U.S. and the systematic character that the Monroe Doctrine played in American foreign policy. So he was very well aware that the U.S. wanted to conquer the rest of the Americas for the sake of extracting as much as it could and enriching itself. Something about how socialism is not a universal thing and how it takes on different characteristics wherever it develops in different parts of the world. And I don't think that that's false, but I know that we reject going too far, say, quote-unquote, socialism with Chinese characteristics or socialism with American characteristics. So just on that topic, where is the line between socialism and revisionism? Glad that was brought up. It's really not for today's topic. It really isn't. But it's an ideological position that is not consistent with our position. Our position is that study Khrushchev carefully, and you see that the international communist movement came into this discussion with Khrushchev putting a spotlight on national characteristics supersedes the general science of Marxism and Leninism. And you can trace it back to that administration in its attack on Stalin. And if you go to Stalin's famous quote to Mao Zedong, which most people don't even know about, in which Comrade Stalin criticizes Comrade Mao and saying there's no such thing, this is way back, by the way, there's no such thing as signified Marxism. Look at that quote and study it carefully. I want to clarify, I'm not saying that socialism is not a universal or that Marxism-Leninism is not a universal philosophy. What I'm saying is that it's not an abstract universal. The dialectical materialism doesn't think of universals as abstract, as disconnected from particular concrete realities as bourgeois philosophy before the emergence of Marxism does. That it's a concrete universal, a universal that is embodied in specific circumstances. And because of those circumstances, Although its essence is the same, the form that it takes is specific to the concrete situation in which it is rooted in. In every socialist project that has emerged, it has to take up its own history and combine that history with Marxism-Leninism, its own culture, its own conditions, and advance the struggle for socialism from that standpoint. About Jose Marti as being not a... Marxist-Leninist, well, it couldn't be a Leninist, but a Marxist, not being a socialist. It reminds me of the great French Revolution a hundred years before. We had Robespierre, who was a hardcore revolutionary there, but he was a bourgeois democrat revolutionary against feudalism and kings and 
things like that. So Marty was basically the same against imperialism, national liberation. And he could not be a socialist yet, really, because there was no proletariat to speak of in Cuba. It's a similar situation like in France, capitalist country, obviously, but they have liberté, égalité, fraternité, which is the thing of Robespierre on every single building, public building, right? But they use that, and yet he was extreme wing. And if there had been a proletariat at the time, he would have been a Bolshevik. And that's exactly what Lenin said about him. So Marty, born, let's say, 50 years later, would have been just like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, and all that. That's the way I look at it. I'm curious if you can think of anything in American history that is not connected with the Communist Party that could be perhaps considered analogous to figures like Jose Marti? That's a very good question, right? Because there's so many, so many, but they are either whitewashed or removed from the history textbooks, right? So that it perpetuates this idea that anything that has to do with the American people and with American history is on one side and communism is on the other side. There's this big gulf. And I think that's one of the great myths of the 20th century. In the project that I'm an editor for, the Journal of American Socialist Studies, we try to do just that, recapture these figures. And for instance, in the 1820s, we're talking two decades before Marx and Engels wrote and published any of their prominent works. You had figures in the U.S. that were trying to develop scientific socialism, which means that they were trying to understand the capitalist society that was emerging in early United States, early 19th century U.S. society, they're trying to understand it systematically and scientifically in order to then formulate ways of having a new socialist society arise. They were seen as a deviation from the utopian socialist communities. Virtually no one knows these figures in the U.S., figures like Landon Billsby, William McClure. They're not talked about ever, but they're these monumental figures of our history that we forget. There's so many figures from the 19th century socialist movement and from the 20th century communist movement that we can have as sorts of equivalents of Jose Marti. Thank you for the presentation. Fidel was an active member of the Independence Party in Batista's Cuba. His brother, Raul, was a member of the Communist Party. In fact, Raul had an influence, a positive influence on Fidel's development. Fidel drifted to the left because of the situation. The U.S. pushed him to the left because of the blockade. And Khrushchev was able to offer help to Cuba, economic help and military aid. So therefore, there was a marriage of convenience there that happened. But this idea that he was a communist and he sneaked his way in and then he took his mask off. That was not correct politically. The missile crisis of 1961, the reason why the U.S., why this happened, people don't know, is because the U.S. put nukes, nuclear missiles in Turkey on the border of the Soviet Union. People don't realize there's a connection there. And Castro was working with Khrushchev in order to have an opposite situation. And that's why the missiles came into Cuba and they were agreed upon. And some historians say that Castro was blindsided by this agreement. I don't know if that is true, but that's one of the analysis I've heard. 
The other thing is that our parties have a close relation with the Cuban-American Fidelistas, as we used to call them, the Fidelistas community. We had our first meeting of the U.S. Friends of Soviet People was held at Casa de las Americas, which was a place near Union Square in New York City, and they lasted for a while. These are people who left Batista's Cuba after the revolution failed, and they found a home here in the United States, and they were always anti-Batista. Is there a relationship, do you think, between the heavy demonization of countries, I mean, especially Cuba, but also Haiti, for being these majority non-white countries that had the gall, quote-unquote, to reject Western hegemony? Because I feel like the way that they're mistreated even more than other countries in this hemisphere, I believe, is related to that. And do you also think that there's a relationship between demonizing or at least convincing Blacks and Latinos in this country that Cuba's evil is also a way to have them to identify with slave masters in the same way that we're constantly being forced to worship the Founding Fathers in the same manner? I'd say, yeah. What we can see from the origins of American capitalism is that it's always imbued with racism, right? It's one of the most effective ideological tools for dividing the struggle of the working class. So, of course, when it comes to imperialist discourse used to legitimize the empire's attacks on other countries, racism and prejudice is always going to be a central element of it. The playbook of American imperialism is so repetitive. They're demonized because of its human rights abuses. But if you replace human with capital, there you have the truth. What they abuse is the rights of capital to just take over the life of Cubans. They don't abuse human rights. And one of the central things that you see, even with the movement and at the beginning in 53, after the attack on the Moncada Barracks, and this is something that Fidel specifies and, and history will absolve me, if they would have been more brutal, if they would have actually violated human rights, maybe they would have done some things, they would have gotten farther in certain areas, but because they hold on to this humanistic principle, they tie it to Marti's philosophy. There's never really been any proved human rights abuses in Cuba. But again, that's what the empire says, because it attaches the idea of human rights to the rights of private property, the rights of capitalist accumulation. But in terms of the demonizing of Cuba, that's really what I think is the essence of the matter, right? The, the violation of human rights and liberty and all of these words, when you hear them coming out of the mouths of these embodiments of empire, you should always think capital. When they say human, when they say people, you think capital, because the rights that are being violated, the right of capitalists to exploit. The Grand Expedition going from Mexico to Cuba to start the war, there's five names that stand out. Fidel, his brother Raul, Che Guevara, Camillo Sanfuegos, and one more, Nico Lopez. It's interesting because Che Guevara traveled through South America, and he came all the way to Central America from Argentina, and he ended up in Guatemala. Not long after, Fidel did the Moncada thing in Cuba. And not long after either, the United States overthrew a progressive government in Guatemala, and that radicalized Che Guevara big time. And that's where he met Nico Lopez. And 
Nico Lopez later introduced him to Fidel and his brother when they came to Mexico, next to Guatemala. And then they took off on the expedition. And you know, sadly, the government waited for them, the boat, the Ranma, he waited for them, they knew were coming. Waited for them, they attacked them with planes, artillery, you name it. And Che, Raul, Fidel, and Camilo Sanfuegos, they made it to the mountains, the Sierra Maestra. But sadly, Nico Lopez got killed right away. That was a sad story, but eventually, revolution won. You're absolutely right. The coup of Jacobo Arbenz radicalized the hell out of Che. And as Comrade Angelo was mentioning, the empire has this tendency to radicalize those that are fighting against it, even beyond the points where they were originally in. This was the case with Fidel, as was rightly mentioned. This was also the case with Hugo Chavez, who, when he first got into power, he wanted to have a formal sort of relationship, an okay relationship with the empire. And very quickly, he gets kidnapped and he knows that that's never really going to happen. Since we're coming to a point where the U.S. is doing so many sanctions that Pretty much it's creating an alternate global economy, sort of like how back during the Cold War, there was the socialist bloc's economic connection. Has that been improving things in Cuba? Or will it take some time before Cuba's trade flow strengthens due to increasing number of nations rejecting U.S. sanctions? What we find historically is that Cuba is able to succeed when there is a separate block outside of the sphere of influence of U.S. and NATO imperialism. That was the case when the Soviet Union and the Eastern Socialist States were around. They provided a network that Cuba was allowed to trade with and given fair prices, right? That's another thing that the forms of trade that the empire embarks in are very unilateral. During the beginning of the first sort of red wave in Latin America, that helped Cuba a lot because that lost its major trading partner with the overthrow of Soviet socialism. I think that now that we are emerging into what many have described as a multipolar world with the rising influence of China, of Russia, of countries like Iran, and of Latin America saying no to the influence of U.S. and NATO imperialism, I'm hoping that more is done to trade with Cuba and to provide the means through which they can continue increasing the living standards of their people. I mean, what they've done has been fantastic. Every important aspect of any struggle is, first, we need to understand the toolbox of who we're up against, but also our own toolbox. See what can we do with the tools that we have at the moment and see what we can't do. It seems to me that the real big crunch point that the blockade can just be no more, but it seems like as much of the taxpayer dollars of our money that we who live in America, at least, are paying, have been paying taxpayers. All the, Most of that money, it just seems, has gone to things like the blockade. It's gone to the military-industrial complex that's creating these situations. The Cuban Socialist Revolution and just Cuban history in general is probably my favorite to study within the world of socialism and communism. And it's so crucial to continue to protect and defend Cuba the world capitalist circle wants nothing more than to see that country gone. Well, they don't want the country gone. They want the government gone. They want all of its progress gone. They hate what Fidel was able to achieve. They absolutely despise it because it spits in the face of their agenda. It spits in the face of their hatred. 
of their thievery of working class people. They can't stand it. I also want to recommend a fantastic book called Fidel and the Cuban Socialist Revolution. It's a collection of speeches that Fidel made in the period of 1959 to 1961. It's really fascinating stuff. A great collection of history and very optimistic to read. It's full of hope and positivity for the future of socialism and certainly something to read when we feel down about what we're fighting for. When Trump was president, he had a whole speech commemorating the Bay of Pigs failure. Big win. But at the same time, I know Obama allowed Americans to once again get visas to go to Cuba. And I believe the Biden administration did that as well. We see this kind of bourgeois disagreement. At the same time, I know while we need to defend Cuba and the revolution, the socialist revolution, there might be some tendencies to do some revisionism within the party and within the democracy. If someone can speak about how the current Communist Party in Cuba, what problems they face right now, and how us as Americans can show solidarity, obviously don't support imperialist wars against Cuba, but if someone could speak about that. One of the more difficult challenges that a revolution faces is when its initial cadres die off. It's very interesting the phase that we're seeing in Cuba post-Fidel. But I think that what we find is that the people are still thrilled about the revolution. And in part, that's because the structure of socialist governance in Cuba makes the people the protagonists of the construction of socialism. So whenever there's mistakes, there's always the capacity to rectify those mistakes as soon as possible. And of course, we're talking about mistakes under an immense pressure from the empire, right? It's like questioning someone's swimming form while they have their legs tied. You're right about the fact that the partial lifting that occurred during the Obama administration, which was actually mediated by Pope Francis, but that partial lifting was removed as a sort of compromise to the Miami Cuban community in order to get them to vote for Trump and not for another Republican candidate. So Trump initially didn't want to remove the advances that Obama had made, but he ended up removing them, putting Cuba on the state sponsor of terrorism list, which is absurd. The country that sends bombs across the world and the one that sends doctors, the one that sends doctors, the one that's the sponsor of terrorism. One of the interesting things that's usually not talked about is that in the two, three year period that the partial lifting of the blockade took place, Cuba had one of the highest GDP growths in the whole region. And it was a growth that was distributed across its population. It's not like GDP here in the US that it really doesn't mean anything to common folk. It was a growth that was felt in the raising of living standards for their people. Again, the main issue that Cuba is facing is the blockade and everything we can do to fight against it is absolutely essential because Biden promised to go back to Obama era policy and he hasn't really done that. He's actually gone even beyond Trump in many areas, especially after the July 11th protests. About the general exile of Cubans who objected to the communist uprising in Cuba. You have this mass exodus of Cubans from this country and stories about them coming through rafts. It wants some clarity as to how fabricated a lot of that is in terms of how they escaped, if they were even able to leave, all these quote unquote human rights abuses. 
I've had a struggle trying to justify the government of Cuba post-revolution. That's a big glaring thing that people like to go back to. It's like, well, why did so many people escape? Why did so many people have trouble escaping? Why did they go on boats? And why weren't they able to take all their stuff with them? And yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. Because I know the majority of them were upper class, middle class, mostly white. There's that, but I feel like that's just not enough to really stress why it's such a weird thing to talk about. They have came in different waves. And the first major wave right after the revolution was definitely the national bourgeoisie, but also their professionals, right? Cuba has basically cut its social capital, right? Its professionals are cut in half, and that creates a big problem that the revolution deals with and deals with quite successfully. But you mentioned the rafts. There's this idea that's promoted by anti-communists, which is, look, socialism is so bad, people are literally throwing themselves in the ocean to escape it. That ignores a bunch of things. That's how metaphysical thinking occurs. You have a fact and you say, well, forget about the factors that led to the fact. I'm just going to look at the fact and make up my own story. But why were people leaving after this first wave? Because the conditions were difficult because of the blockade especially during the special period. That's where a lot of the people are throwing themselves into the ocean. It's the first thing. Conditions are difficult. Second thing, the U.S. was rejecting the ability of Cubans that wanted to leave to get visas. That's never talked about. The U.S. rejects their ability to get visas, which means that the only thing they can do is throw themselves in the ocean. And who does that benefit? That benefits the imperialist narrative, because then they have the atrocity propaganda that they can use and say, look, Look how evil socialism is. People are literally throwing themselves in the oceans to get to the U.S. Look how great the U.S. is. And the reality is that those people were erroneous about why they blamed the condition. But the reality is that from start to finish, the fault is on American imperialism that created objective material hardships in Cuba and that also exploited those hardships in order to create the atrocity propaganda necessary so that as a Cuban, so that my brothers and sisters, thousands of them have died in the ocean because of American policy. And it's just a political game for them to use and to justify their blockade on Cuba. And it's unacceptable. And it's quite literally accepted as being unacceptable by the fact that most countries in the world unanimously over the last 30 years have condemned the blockade. Back in 91, I spent uh, a week in Cuba as part of a labor organization. And I was also a journalist. I got permission from the U.S. government to go over as a journalist. And... I spent, besides radio itinerary that we had, I purposely spent much of my spare time because I was one of the coordinators of a cable TV show. I went around Cuba, around the neighborhoods, all throughout Cuba, Havana, with my camera and with my video camera freely and spoke to people. Sometimes I was out there at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. I even tell people it's probably the safest country. The only country I would go to during vacation. The people I spoke to, and there were crowds during the day. There were thousands of people in the parks, walking around, enjoying themselves. You could tell people that were in certain oppressed countries, the way people act when they're out in the street. These are people that were enjoyed themselves and enjoyed the freedom of having some of the benefits that a lot of Americans don't have. Healthcare, jobs. Could you briefly touch on the dissolution of political parties in Cuba and maybe touch on the political process in Cuba, the electoral process? 
the political process in Cuba is as democratic as you can really see anywhere in the world. There's people that select municipal candidates and you're not forced to pick members of the Communist Party. You just pick members of your community. There's been artists that have been selected just because they're good members of their community. And once those people are selected to the municipalities, then they end up electing the people for the provinces and then the people for the National Assembly. And throughout the process, there's a constant capacity to recall if someone's not doing what they're put there to do, which is represent the people. So you don't have in Cuba what you have in liberal bourgeois democracy, where it's the democracy of money. Money is what ultimately is calling the shots, which is something that it's accepted. Ivy League studies continue to come out that say that more than 95% of elections are determined by the candidate that raises the most money. And what's interesting is that if you look at who funded the candidate, you see that they also funded the other side. None of that exists in Cuba. I want to, on behalf of the People's School, thank Comrade Carlos for an absolutely fantastic presentation, as well as the Latino Commission. Obviously, July 26th, the July 26th movement, the study of revolutionary Cuba is a very, very incredibly important aspect, especially for American communists to study. Again, this is socialism less than 200 miles off of our coastline. And Carlos mentioned that what if Cuba had all this access to the resources that it doesn't have because of the blockade? And no one knows that better than the United States government. They know that Cuba would grow by leaps and bounds exponentially if they did lift that blockade. So they are only acting in the interests of imperialism by not doing so. And I do want to mention, we recently released our selected speeches of Comrade Fidel Castro. It's about 250 some odd pages. Go ahead, head over to newoutlookpublishers.net and get yours. We also released our recent copy of the Women's Commission book, Collected Readings of the Women's Commission. So go ahead and get those. Brief reminder, the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies is the continuation of communist education in America. We are carrying on the legacy of institutions like the Jefferson School of Social Science, the Center for Marxist Education, and the People's School for Marxist Studies. So the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies is merely the continuation and the long line of party-sponsored schools in the United States. And we carry on the legacy of ideologically educating working people, youth, all oppressed peoples in the study and the science of Marxism-Leninism. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.